Hello and welcome to the Business Class Lounge, the podcast where I interview marketing leaders and executives to understand how they really think about leadership, management, finance, and more. This is a podcast from Searchpilot. My name is Will Critchlow. I'm joined today by Brian Hale. Brian is VP Growth at DoorDash, but we met over a decade ago when he was in the growth team at Facebook, and we got to work together on some SEO initiatives. In the intervening decade, he rose up the ranks ultimately to lead a large team as VP product growth across Meta, as Facebook had become by then. He's been responsible for as much growth innovation as anyone I know, and his work has affected an incredible number of people. As you'll hear though, he's also an empathetic and effective leader, and I'm looking forward to quizzing him about growth challenges. Brian, thank you so much for joining me today. Very excited to have this conversation. It's been, what was it, like a decade since we first crossed paths, I think, in your in your Facebook days. And you've done so much since then. One of the places I want to start really was when you look back at the career journey, I've heard you talk in other places about it was very atypical, certainly at the start, but then it's gone, I guess, a bit more kind of conventional. So what do you attribute the success you had at Facebook and then this move to DoorDash, when you look back on it, is there a coherent story that hangs together? <laughs> well, thanks for having me. I know, I think I would say that I'm probably just very docked about things. Like uh, I just sort of stick with things for a really long time. And that's sort of my personality. So I really like to think about long-term problems and things that drive kind of compound interest and just like keep accumulating value over time and looking for stuff like that. And you can't really do that if you're only, you know, in a role or in a job for like a short period of time. So I kind of get in things and then I just doggedly go after them. And I suppose once I was at Facebook, what was nice was the company kept growing. So I was able to just grow with it and grow my career there. So I think it was a lovely place to be for quite a long time. Now switching over to DoorDash, it's like getting to sort of hit reset on the on the game, I guess, and go back to the earlier stages, which I think are a lot more fun than the very late stages of that game, essentially. Yeah, it's interesting because I also feel like I've stuck at some things for a very long time. I mean, you know, running Search Pilot is really it's kind of an extension of Distilled, which we started in 2005. So, you know, I've not had very many jobs. And it's maybe a little bit, for both of us, maybe a little bit unusual in that respect, because I think a lot of the received wisdom around the places, you've got to move to get ahead. You've got to, you know, not job hop exactly, but but be looking for those next opportunities. When you're talking to kind of younger folks or, or newer folks on, on your teams, how do you think about that trade-off with them? Do you, do you kind of help them think through their bigger career planning? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I think the only way you're successful for a long period of time is that you find people who are super great and you invest in them and you and you keep helping them grow because anything you want to do that is meaningful requires a pretty big team and uh, at a company that's meaningful requires a pretty good team. So I think about that a lot. I mean, the key is being in a place where there are those opportunities. So if you're in a place that's growing and then you can continue to make sure you're setting up the folks you're investing in and the next layer down after that. So you have folks to invite up if, if people leave and stuff like that. But yeah, I think it's really important to have those conversations directly. So I have a, a very strong practice of just making sure you carve out time to talk about that. Uh, otherwise, people are like guessing 
what might be next. But usually I think if you're at a company that's actually growing pretty fast and has a long runway and you're good at what you do and you're in a spot where your manager and their manager also know about you and know about your work, then you're in a really great spot. I think actually people make a mistake of hopping around when they're in that situation or thinking they need to. Now, it's totally different if you're in a situation where company isn't growing, the prospects aren't very good, or if you know your manager and you aren't on the same page about stuff, or you know you are, but their manager isn't, it becomes clear to you. So those are the three key things for career growth, in my view, is like being somewhere that's growing and having your manager and your manager's manager on the same page that you're someone they want to invest in. If that's all clear, then I think you're way better off being patient and letting sort of this notion of cumulative advantage accruing to you. Because over time, you start to know how the company ticks. You start to know how everything works. You become more valuable. So I actually think there's a huge switching cost. You know, like I sort of took it for granted, but but switching recently, almost uh, a year and three quarter now, It takes like a year to get ramped up, honestly, with a a whole new domain, a whole new company. And so if you're switching every year, then you're just doing startup costs over and over again. I think that's kind of silly. Yeah, that makes a a ton of sense. Obviously, not everyone can find their Facebook early in their career, but I think looking for those key factors and then having the patience and and having that staying power, um, I'm certainly a fan of that as well. It's really interesting thinking about that ramp up time so one thing I've never, I haven't done in my career is move into a leadership role with a team that's already established. And you know, presumably you'll have hired since you were at DoorDash, but there was a bunch of people there already. What was that experience like? That's very interesting. Yeah, it is different than when you hired folks. I actually think that as long as the company was pretty good at hiring, then actually I kind of think that's great because mm-hmm. hiring is a ton of work and is one of the hardest and most important jobs you have. Right. But yeah, like maybe the ideal is, is it's like a partially hired team. I think starting from zero is extremely difficult and it takes a long, a long time. So I think starting from something is better than starting from zero, but it's not really different. I mean, people are people and they, they have the same desires. They want to grow their careers. They want to know that their boss has their back and stuff like that. So, you know, there's some aspects of teaching folks new stuff. That's part of when you move companies, you're probably being hired because you know some stuff or you're good at things that that company needs. So there's an aspect of teaching, but usually, uh, you know, it's faster to train someone who you already have than to go out and try and find someone, hire them fresh. So yeah, no, I always think it's very important to default to the people you have and see if you can grow them and train them up and, and bring them into leadership position and only like really go external if you just physically can't do that. That's the key, I think. But not every company has to be Facebook. Like there's a lot of companies that are growing and I don't know, I'm attracted to growth companies. That's sort of how I've known to operate. I've never done a company that wasn't a growth company ever. Mm -hmm. So I don't really know how to operate in that other environment, to be honest. So I don't know, I'll just stick to my lane there, I suppose. (laughs) It's a pretty good one, pretty broad one, I think. and. You've talked a couple other places about the strength of the managers that you've had over the years. And I'm sure that applies to the skip level and and above as well. But when you look at the influence they had, especially those those managers you had at Facebook, 
what have you taken from them or what have you kind of internalized? You say, I want to use that in my own management style. Yeah, no, I think what was great about most of the managers I've had is that, especially at Facebook, is you take a sort of a strengths-based approach rather than focusing on the things you don't do well, focusing on the things you do do well. Now, sometimes to reach the next level, you have to like work on stuff that you don't do well because you won't be able to do the next level without that. Mm-hmm. But that's more like um, sort of getting to to like reasonable, right? You're, <laughs> the stuff you're bad at, you're never going to be anything better than just reasonable at it, to be honest. So like for me, I got this feedback like, Brian, you're too nice. Mm. And, you know, it's like, what is this feedback? You're too nice. And maybe it's like, okay, stereotype, I'm Canadian. <laughs> I grew up in Canada, right? So Did you apologize for being too nice? <laughs> I was like, wow, crap. I am, you know, I'm too nice. Yeah, I'm like, I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm too nice. You know, <laughs> I'm very Canadian to do something like that. But with this, I think the key was actually understanding what that feedback was. I think what's not helpful, because I'd heard that before, but then I had a great manager at Facebook who took it to the next level and sort of like really explained what that feedback meant or what the impacts were, what the effects were, what was not happening or what was happening because of that. So let's use this example. I think this is really good because like to me, the way you help people grow on the things that are going to hold them back is like the first rule is if it's not going to hold them back, then don't worry about it. You just don't even bother with that feedback. Like they're not good at it. They're never going to be good at it unless they work on it a lot. And if it's not holding them back, who cares? So like, I think a lot of managers make the mistake of trying to make their people like well-rounded or something. Mm -hmm. That's not what you're trying to do. You're trying to get people who are really good at things and then put them in a position where what they're really good at is really needed. You match that up and they'll do brilliantly. Like that, that's sort of like, your job as a leader or manager, your number one job is to put people in a spot where they can be awesome. Mm -hmm. And if they're awesome, then the company benefits and the whole team benefits, right? Now, sometimes there's actually a thing that's going to hold them back. And in that case, what's not helpful, like the least helpful thing ever is when you tell someone who's really talented, like, oh, you lack executive presence. You know, this is like this bullshit thing people say about people who, you know, haven't made it yet. And usually there's some like othering happening with that, with that feedback, like, oh, you're not what they expect of a leader with executive presence. Mm -hmm. So that, like that kind of thing, or like, you're being too nice. Like, what do I do with that? Like being not nice, like being nice is part of what got me here. It's part of what makes people want to work with me, right? So it is a strength, but then there's aspects of it. So what was helpful was taking it to the next level and saying, oh, what's happening is you're right about your feedback, but they're not hearing it because you're padding it too much or you're beating around the bush before you get to it. And it's like, you need to just get straight to the feedback and be really blunt about it because otherwise they can't hear you or they're not understanding that your feedback is like essential or important right. because of the way it's being delivered. Mm-hmm. And that was like a revelation. And then my manager said something to the effect of like, I think you're trying to be kind, but if you're not giving them the feedback and then they're failing because they're not getting your feedback, then you are not being kind to them. You are being unkind to them because they are failing and you could have prevented that. And I was like, you know, face palm moment, Mm -hmm. 
right? And so that sort of gave me permission to be really blunt. So the feedback was not helpful. And then getting really, really specific about what it is, what the effect is, what is being missed and why it matters. It was really helpful, allowed me to break through that. And then I still had to work on it for like a year. <laughs> you know, my boss was like, hey, if as soon as I start getting feedback that you're being super direct and you're being too direct or you're being, you know. Then we'll talk um, about it. Yeah, then, we'll, then I'll give you a promotion. You know? <laughs> <laughs> because clearly you will have made it past this feedback. But yeah, no, it was like, it was great. I think um, one time I pissed off one of the other executives and then my boss and my next one-on-one was like, this is great. You know, you pissed off this other executive because you were so direct with your feedback. Your feedback was correct. They were wrong. They were like a little upset about it. It's like, this is perfect. They heard you. They actually changed their plan because they heard you. They complained about how you said it, but now you can work on like, figuring out the right modulation. Calibrating and dialing that in. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think there's something when somebody is working on something, it's like you got to tell people to make the other mistake. It's like really there's always a spectrum. Yeah. And you're on one end of the spectrum. You're making this mistake. Like try and make the other mistake. Mm-hmm. Until you've gone too far, you won't know where the middle is. <laughs> that is really interesting. Yeah, I thought that's a great... Um, this guy, Mark Rabkin, who I think is as a talented leader at Facebook, said that. I love that. Yeah, I thought that was really great. There's something related in there as well of, I don't know if this resonates with you, but I think oftentimes, especially around things like niceness, wait, like you say, it got you here and in your personal life and it got you to all those different things. It's part of your identity in a way, not necessarily that you would state it like, I am a nice person, but you certainly wouldn't have the opposite. You certainly would be like, I'm more nice than not. Did you feel like in that process, you had to change your kind of mental model of yourself? Like, I am not going to identify as that as strongly in order to be effective. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think about it as you're flexing out of your zone mm-hmm. and recognizing that when you do that, it is like a lot of exertion, maybe. It's like very mentally draining and emotionally draining mm-hmm. to flex out of your normal zone. So people's like sort of baseline personality and how they operate is pretty standard. And when they have to like deviate massively from that, then it's like requires great exertion. You have to like hold yourself, hold it all together to do that, right? Try not to apologize for it. (laughs) So I think that the trick is that if you get yourself into a role where like that has to be your default, that's going to be a problem for you. Very stressful. Because you're going to burn out in that spot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very stressful. And it may not be outwardly visible to other people what's going on with you Mm -hmm. with that. So I think that's the key. It's like, you got to also talk to your manager and the people you work with closely, the people you rely on and like explain the things like that. You're like, Hey, I've, I've gotten good at this. You may not realize that this like wears me out, but when I have to do that, it wears me out. Mm-hmm. And like also telling people around you, especially your boss, because otherwise they won't know if they're asking you to do stuff that's burning you out. And then eventually you'll get burnt out and quit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because your manager's like, well, you know, Brian's clearly good at that. So I should just have him do that all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. Anyway. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. If I have to go be the bad cop all the time, that's going to be a hard job for me. I'm not going to be happy, Yeah, but I can do it. I don't think um, giving very direct and firm feedback is not something people would think now is something that is like difficult for me mm-hmm. because I do it all the time. But 
it is something that I'm going out of my comfort zone to do that. Yeah, I totally agree with you on the importance of it as well. I think that point about the kindness of trying to be too nice and, and failing to help people succeed is is huge. It's one of the things I've seen a lot of times with managers who have to put someone into any kind of performance management or, you know, worst case, fire someone for the first time. All of them say, I wish I'd been more direct sooner. Yeah. Literally 100% of them say, I wish early in the process I had said to the person, like, your job is at risk if you don't get better at this thing. Because until you've been literally that clear, then it's going to be misunderstood and misinterpreted. It's tough, isn't it? Yeah, no, totally. That's also your job as like a, I don't know, a senior manager or director of early managers. Is to help them. Yeah, exactly. That is the classic mistake that every almost every single one of them is going to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Occasionally, there are people who just naturally are not that way or are naturally extremely direct. I don't know. I tend to attract these people like opposites attract, yeah. you know, like my wife is totally that way. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> like, big time. Oh, yeah. And like, uh, you know, my manager at Facebook was totally that way. If you know Alex, right? Like he's, <laughs> he's totally that way. Yeah. It's just sort of a natural state. They just do that all the time. But most people uh, will have, especially as a new manager, they think that they should manage those people the way they like to be managed. Mm-hmm. And usually what happens is it's like your superstar individual contributor who's like just amazing at being an individual contributor gets promoted to be a manager. And then they like end up with someone who's not them because, you know, they're like the top 10%. Right. <laughs> so 90% of the time they get someone who's not them, right? And then they don't know what to do with that because the way they like to be managed was probably mostly to be left alone, to be praised or to be helped to unblock stuff in the organization, couldn't block or blah, you know, a couple things like that, but mostly just let me do my thing. But like, Actually, people who are new mostly need to be trained. And so they're sort of making that mistake, like they're making a double mistake. They're like not teaching the people how to do it, right? And then they're not telling them when they're failing. And then they're like not firing them fast enough or not performance managing them fast enough. And it's like, just fail state. So I think as a second line manager, your main job is to teach your early manager that this is their job. (laughs) And how to do it. Because like you say, an awful lot of first-time managers are there because they've been high flyers. And so they may have never been through performance management. They may have never seen it on either side of the table until they have to do it. Oh yeah, literally, right? Because they never never were in that state, right? right? right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Unless they happen to be in a role that was like a bad fit. No, what I think about the performance management is like that. It's like the main thing is actually it's a kindness because Usually when someone's in a role where they're failing badly like that, they know that like deep down, they know it, you know, maybe their manager isn't doing a good job of telling them, Mm -hmm. but they know that this is like not going that great. Mm -hmm. And there is probably extremely stressful. So I think you're doing them a kindness by either helping them get through and successful in that or taking them out of the situation because also human beings generally are terrible just like really bad at taking themselves out of situations where they're failing. I mean, people don't quit things where it's not going well. It takes bravery. Absolutely. Yeah. And so like, actually you're doing them a kindness. I don't know if this will lead to anything interesting, but there's something potentially interesting in, there's that kind of cliche of American business in general, and certainly Silicon Valley of being quite kind of quick to fire. And I think it's interesting, obviously you're working for a Brit, in Alex, and you're a Canadian, you know, I'm a Brit as well. We have somewhat different cultures around some of that stuff, although you did talk about how blunt Alex is. 
But did you find that that was different? Like one of the things that we've worked quite hard on, for example, is even with our US teams, we go into performance management genuinely looking for the good outcome, right? The, the best thing we're looking for is that person to succeed. And that's a bit alien to some American organizations that I've worked with, where by the time you get into that performance management situation, you're basically gone. They're just, you know, they're covering the legal bases and they're going to make sure that they don't get sued and then someone's out the door. Have you experienced any kind of culture clash there or any, any differences in that? Uh, yeah, no, I think with Meta, at least it was pretty genuine. I mean, you know, for a long time there, I had a very big organization. So I saw a lot, a lot of cases yeah. over many, many years, mm-hmm. right? And I would say about half of them succeeded and about half of them didn't succeed. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty good hit rate. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, it definitely was not um, just like going through the motions. Mm-hmm. I think that the key is that, you know, you hired these people for a reason, right? I do think it has to do with whether you have a really good hiring process yep. where you actually do a good job of hiring people. I think the root problem actually is that most of the time, the hiring process that companies use is horrible. <laughs> it's like, you just, I mean, you might as well be flipping coins or something. Mm-hmm. And when I got to Facebook, that was one of the things that the company did super, super well. And I'm not actually sure where that culture came from. Maybe it was transplanted from Google or some other place in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. But by the time I was there, I thought that the hiring process was actually very good. And what it was trying to do was simulate the job. So you're, you're in these interviews and you're actively putting people through what the job is at its core and then seeing how they do with that. And if you're doing that, then, you know, like the premise is you hired someone for a reason because they're good at the thing that they're supposed to be good at in that job. And then, yeah, usually the thing in their way is sort of not the core responsibility of the role. It's sort of either like how they're gelling with the team or working cross-functionally or something. So I think if you did a really good job of hiring, then the thing holding people back is usually not like the core responsibilities. And so then it's kind of a 50-50 chance if they can get through that and get to the other side. Could solve whatever it is around them. Yeah. So pivoting a little bit, I heard your interview a little while back on the on the 20-minute VC, and you got into a whole load of discussions about structures of growth teams and organizational structures and those kind of things. Yeah. I was really interested. So you picked out one particular thing that I found fascinating, which was you talked about how looking from the outside in, you felt like Google had some challenges building growth teams because they had this culture of not touching other teams' code. Yeah. And that was something that you didn't have a problem with at Facebook. And I was particularly interested in both the other ways around that, like because generally our greatest strength is our greatest weakness, both as individuals and as organizations. So what was the flip side of that? What do you think that led Google to be really good at? And was there a downside to the Facebook team being particularly good at that? Oh, yeah, yeah. No. So, I mean, I think it's a very different way of operating. So I talked to a bunch of Google people. So this is honestly, this is secondhand. I never worked at Google, Mm -hmm. so I can't speak to it firsthand. So I'll just caveat that and say, I'm sure there's some Googlers out there who are going to hear this and be like, oh, Brian doesn't know what the heck he's talking about. So (laughs) it's always different in different teams as well. So we can always just fall back on that. Oh, it must must have been a different team. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Or I didn't get it quite right. But when I've talked to the Google people who've worked there and I've talked about this dichotomy, Because like basically Google has this whole thing where if you want to touch that code, you basically have to go study the code to study the setup and get really good at it. And then you have to pass a test with someone who is like certified in that as an engineer. And then once you're certified, then you can go in and, and change that code around. And before that, you're not allowed to, right? 
And from Facebook perspective, this is like absurd, an absurdity and sort of like very counter to the development culture. But at Google, this is like really important. Now, if you go way back, I think like Google published a ton of stuff about how like quality really matters and how speed and like we're making the search take like less than a second and then half a second and then a tenth of a second mm-hmm. and just relentlessly getting it down to like this blazingly fast thing, right? And basically optimizing every aspect of quality of the search. So I think the trade-off with this is basically speed of execution versus quality of development, probably mm-hmm. quality of code. Yep. And like how fast it can run, how stable it is and all that kind of stuff. And I think Facebook like actually has pretty good code quality, but the engineers would probably get into debates about this. Like I would say Facebook has pretty like good enough code quality that it's stable and feels pretty fast for the most part. But to like maybe Google standards, they would be like, no, this is slow. This is not as stable as we want and stuff like that. So I think it's a trade-off between speed of development and code stability and code quality and how fast the app runs and things of that nature. And if you're optimizing like really extreme for that, like amazing quality, you basically can't just let anybody in there mucking with the code. Right. Right. (laughs) And so that's the trade-off, right? Now, what that does is it makes you less flexible and adaptable. And like all the things we did on the growth team, it, it makes it kind of makes this concept of a growth team where you can just go anywhere and implement things to like unblock growth anywhere in the stack. Kind of not possible unless, I don't know, unless you, you'd have to like- You need certified engineers from every, some crazy stuff. every bit of the team or every bit of the stack. Yeah, you'd, you'd be like, we can set up this team, but I need 35 certified engineers in every stack. <laughs> yeah, right. And like, you probably could never get that done, mm. right? So you could never amass that team. You know? Yeah. I mean, it, you can see how the organizations evolved that way because, you know, you look at Google with, I think probably fair to say the greatest product market fit of any organization in history. Yeah. That's amazing. Like almost a hundred percent, right? Exactly. <laughs> and like, it's hard to even imagine more product market fit. And then I think you look at the extreme growth of Facebook and it it does feel more engineered, right? It is that growth team. It is that fact that you've gone and hunted for those blockages. You've gone and removed the things that stop people recommending or returning or whatever. And you've engineered the flow of the product market fit, which was clearly there in each point, you know, like going all the way back to in the college days of Facebook, where it's just spread like wildfire. But then it would have hit those, whatever you call them, like the fire breaks, I guess, had you not had that team unblocking it. Exactly, exactly. No, I think that's right. And I think ultimately, most products are more like that. I think Google is the exception to the rule. Mm -hmm. And basically, it's like a a product where you go and ask it a question. Now, Google has relentlessly invested in the core product market fit. And they've done it by thinking about like every single possible thing you could search for and having an amazing page for that. And just going wickedly down this path for every family and bucket of keywords and stuff like this and just relentlessly working on that and that's like google's moat i mean it's just unbelievably difficult to compete with that at this point with all of the cumulative advantage of all the decades of work with that so they kind of like just did that and then and then if you look at the other big google success stories a lot of them other than youtube i mean youtube was an acquisition right but The other things are things that just require a similar kind of personality, I would say, or company personality. Like Google Maps is like that, where it's a very technical problem. 
it requires extremely high quality engineering. And then you just like, I mean, look at how bad Apple Maps feels compared to Google Maps. It's just atrocious, right? I, I used it on this trip I'm on right now. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I have to get away. I don't even know what, what all the things are that are bugging me, but I'm just like, this is so inferior. I can't even stand it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's, not, it's not normal. It's not, it's not usual. Most of us in most companies don't have that kind of either that level of product market fit in the core thing or, yeah, I guess the capabilities that they've then built out of that, which span the stack. It's everything from the, you know, the innovations you see come out of it on the um, SRE or DevOps side all the way through to the products, I think. I want to pivot a little bit again. And yeah. you mentioned actually at the outset that you love this slightly earlier phase. So you, you've gone, obviously, you're at Facebook in an early growth stage. Now at DoorDash at a, a smaller scale than, than the Facebook you left. I want to talk about the big orc stuff for a second. So you said it, it wasn't for you ultimately, but what did you learn about navigating the kind of bigger org and the kind of politics that sit around that? What did you learn to, to operate effectively in that bigger org? Yeah, I guess what I would say is it wasn't so much the having a bigger org that was the problem. It was eventually that I was in a position where I wasn't actually doing the things I liked. <laughs> so I think that having a big org is a means to an end, right? Like you have this team so that that team can go and do stuff. And, you know, like we basically built this growth function and then these folks are embedded across growth teams across all of Meta. I actually like the rebranding because it worked for my role. as like I could explain yep. what my team was doing. It's like all of the apps mm -hmm. uh, as a horizontal thing. But yeah, I think for a very long time, what was actually going on was we were not able to staff everything and not able to staff all the important things and, you know, just catching up or hiring constraints or headcount constraints or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so that left this hole that I personally got to go in and still do my individual contributing kind of stuff. So I love being an IC on growth. Yep. And so uh, for a very, very, very long time, I could do the org stuff, do the team stuff and still get my hands dirty. And then eventually what happened is like we, we had filled out the team. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it succeeded, right? It succeeded, right? But then what would happen is I would like go in deep on something and then I would get these like back channels four layers up and then they'd be like, oh, you know, Brian doesn't trust us. He doesn't trust what we're doing. You know, what do we need to do? And I'm like, I'm just trying to like not go crazy <laughs> just being this org manager as my only job mm. <laughs> or it was that or like here's this hairy defense problem for the company that only you can work on because you've been here forever and i don't really like defense stuff and i really enjoy the offense like ic work but that basically became eventually not my job anymore so that's kind of where i was at i was like i'm not doing this stuff i like and so, yeah, moving made sense because in the earlier stages or, or, or what have you, or building out team, I was going to be able to get involved in the details a lot more. Other people, like, that's not like what got them there or not what they like. So it's really just a sort of personality and fit. Eventually, it sort of just wasn't a fit for me in what I wanted to be doing. Yeah. And the self-awareness piece, I guess, to realize what makes you happy and what drives your enjoyment and success apart from anything else. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Because if you're not in a place, you're not going to be liking it. If you're not enjoying it anymore, then you're not going to be as successful anymore. 100%. Because you just, you know, yep. you're like dragging yourself in. So that's true. And you got to fix it. I think there is a lesson in there. Like, trust that if you aren't liking it, 
<laughs> okay, here's the fail state. This is the one that's really hard. Everyone's telling you, good job. You're getting a good performance evaluation. You know, here's your bonus. You're like, we want to thank you for all your hard work. You're just a pat on the back. If that's happening and you're like, I am unhappy, <laughs> that's the really tricky one because no one is going to remove you from that situation. Yeah. You have to do Well, it. quite the opposite, actually. They're, they're going to try and keep you in that situation because you're performing to a high level and, and you'd be incredibly hard to replace. <laughs> exactly, exactly. They're like, oh, here's some more money. Here's some more responsibility. You're like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't like my job anymore. You know? yeah. yeah. Someone would like that job. It was a great job. I just, all the stuff that gave me energy and kept me going was gone. Mm. That was all. And I actually, I love the company still. I think it's a tremendously amazing company with still so much potential and, and all of that. It just, you know, the role itself had become not something on a day-to-day -day that I liked. That's all. It's not actually like the idea of the job was really cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I like the idea of it, but then the doing of it became just something that wasn't fun day-to-day. -day. Which is also part of that like um, golden cage of not only are you doing a good job and getting rewarded for it and getting praised for it, but you also associate it with it being a good idea. And then there's a lot of cognitive dissonance in that kind of situation. Yeah, yeah. You're like, yeah, this is a great role that should exist. You know, yeah. <laughs> when you explain it to people, they're like, oh, that sounds really cool. Because like the idea of it is really cool. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, you kind of have to just eventually trust and do the things you really like. And because uh, like life is ultimately short. As you get older, I don't know, we're getting older. Like it's been true. since we met, what, it's been another decade i'm like like okay exactly yeah <laughs> i just can't have a job but i don't like it <laughs> i am anymore. entirely with you, you know? on that. yeah definitely speaking of stuff that isn't fun one of the questions that i found has, has elicited some really interesting answers in chats with folks is about things that have gone wrong and obviously those are moments in time where the job is not fun although in a different way maybe the adrenaline is firing maybe maybe there is a certain kind of gratification to solving the problem when times are tough but are there any kind of interesting stories that you're able to talk about of times when things went wrong or either you weren't hitting metrics or mistakes were made or whatever it might be? And then how yeah. you and your teams kind of worked through that and the, the accountability you got from above. How did that all hang together? Yeah, yeah. No, I think um, there are a lot of uh, times in my career when things weren't going very well and I would get asked to jump in and help. And, you know, usually in my walk of work, it's like basically, hey, we're not growing as fast as we want. Yes. If we grow this fast, we're not going to be successful because we're growing too slowly. Lines at the wrong angle. Yeah, yeah. And like someone else is going to win this or whatever. And so, yeah, like one of the best ones I can think of is the case of, do you remember like a Facebook IPO'd and then, you know, basically the stock just like completely cratered mm -hmm. because... The story was that like Facebook was never going to make any money and the shift to mobile, you know, the company was talking about the revenues on mobile people using mobile versus revenues people using desktop. And it was really, really bad. I do remember. <laughs> Probably not as well as you do, but I, I definitely do remember. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, the, the company was now public. So this was not like some hypothetical, like we can just fix it eventually sort of situation. It was like, you know, all your engineers are going to quit because there's, you know, all the stock got eviscerated. And every quarter we have to tell everyone how it's going. Exactly, exactly. So it was like both major problem and very, very urgent. So Basically, what happened was I got asked, like, hey, can you do for advertisers what you were doing for consumers? And I was like, I don't know, actually, if that's going to work. You know, 
uh, like maybe it's totally different. But we started an advertiser growth team and um, I got to work with uh, this guy, Gokul Rajram, who's awesome, who was leading ads at the time and some of his team. And we just started up a team like inside of ads. And this model ended up being the model we kind of used across the board for growth teams for everything. It's just like embedded directly in that organization. Yep. So what we did was we basically had to figure out if like the same stuff, like basically removing all the blockers, removing all the friction was the same in this sort of B2B world. And the answer was definitively yes. It was a, a huge success. And the mistake the company was making was basically assuming that that wasn't a problem, right? Like it was sort of like, um, hey, you know, people will just figure this out because it's their job to figure it out kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But then kind of misunderstanding that like basically, oh, it's a whole new kind of advertising that didn't exist before. So now you fast forward, you're like, there's all these professionals who just do this. But back then there really wasn't. So everyone was having to learn this thing for the first time. And it was just really, really hard. I mean, it was really hard to do that work as a person buying the ads yeah. and figuring out how to get it to show. And so we made it way easier in a lot of, we could, we could talk for hours about the ways we made it easier, but basically we made it way, 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 way easier. We figured out the moments when we could offer that to people. Like the biggest one I talk about is like one key growth strategy is to put things in context when someone is in the mindset where they would want to say yes to something. Mm -hmm. So the case for ads was basically if you had a business page and you just posted you're in the mindset of like, I hope this post does well. I hope it gets a bunch of reach and I hope a bunch of people see it and it drives my company, drives my business and makes me successful, right? And that's the perfect moment to like, hey, do you want to turn that into an ad? <laughs> right. It's the perfect moment. Yeah, so yeah. there's this button that says boost post right on the post. And as soon as you post it, it's there and you can use it and then you can create an ad in line. And then we just made that easier and easier. So that's like one of the big success stories. But yeah, it turns out it's actually the same for B2B as consumer stuff, exactly the same, all the same principles apply, exactly. Mm -hmm. And the only difference is you have fewer individuals, so it's harder to run experiments right. and know, mm -hmm. and it's smaller, as we say. You, you don't have a billion monthly active users or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But still, it was like hundreds of thousands. Mm -hmm. You can still do a lot of um, experiments if you have hundreds of thousands of people. So I think a lot of organizations make the mistake of thinking that they just have to kind of go by their gut and that like, oh, these people, it's their job. So making it really easy doesn't matter. That's actually completely wrong. Yeah. How good was the org at giving you the time and space? Because this work is not instant, right? You've talked elsewhere about how you have to do the research. You have to really dig into it. You have to understand the problem. You have to run these experiments. And then you gradually, you start moving these metrics in the right direction. Meanwhile, someone's got to go on the next quarterly earnings call and say, we're still not making money on mobile. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, totally. Are you getting shouted at the whole time? Like, How's this working? No, I think, I mean, there was a lot of pressure, of course, but the thing was that actually there were a lot of things. So the trick is obviously it's sort of, sort of like, it's going to be harder to create like a whole new like ad flow with this boost post button and then invest in it and make it awesome. Right. So that's like one of your bigger swings in your roadmap. But there's also always like quick wins you can find and you can show progress. So I think the key to this kind of work and to respond to that pressure is to have quick wins in the mix and show progress. You're like, if you have a drumbeat of successes coming out, mm -hmm. you know, we like to say bang the drum 
It's like, what is bang the drum? It's like a drum beat of successes. It's a drum beat of repeating the process on doing a good job relentlessly of finding all the blockers and removing them. But that is the key. It was, you know, as soon as if you're showing progress, then usually then the management's going to let you work, right? So I felt in the first three months, it was pretty stressful. But after that, because we were showing quite a lot of like steady results, it was not. But then it turned into just honestly, just a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> For like a good, you know, couple of years there. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I can imagine once you've crossed the threshold into, I guess the order probably goes, you start believing it's going to work. Leadership starts believing it's going to work stock market believes it's going to work. Like it, it kind of goes in that order, doesn't it? And, yeah, yeah, exactly. And at the point where you're like, <laughs> I now believe this is going to work, you start going, okay, I can just do my job now. And then leadership takes care of the air cover for you. And then then eventually everybody's you know, making tons of money. It's, it's actually really interesting. That whole self-serve small business advertiser model, which I mean, obviously Google has as well, but Facebook has a ton of, it's been really interesting seeing, um, so like Ben Thompson at Stratechery has written a lot about this, of the tension between the stuff that's going on with Apple's iOS 14, uh, you know, advertiser limitations and so forth, and the tension between privacy and advertising. And we don't have time to go into all of those details, but there is a real trade-off of the thriving small businesses that can succeed because of that kind of self-service advertising model. That if you make that less effective, just those small businesses are hurt. And I found that very interesting to watch as well. Yeah, totally. I think that's the thing folks who are not intimately familiar with all this, don't realize is that a lot of the big companies, they will find a way to do a good job of the online ads, yep. right? They, they just will. Maybe Apple with the privacy changes has made it less efficient. I always thought that it was done in a privacy safe way. Like all the things that, um, you know, Facebook and Google implemented were none of it was using PII. Personally, or, I agree. Absolutely. Or like actually selling or sharing data mm-hmm. or all. Or, I think that is sort of misunderstood. I actually think the ads that undermined everything is sort of these retargeting ads where, you know, you like, you look at a ladle and then the ladle falls you around the internet (laughs) and you're like, how does that happen? And it's actually like a one particular kind, but most of the, actually the data targeting that is really important is actually either untargeting say, I don't want to target my existing customers because if you're paying to reach your existing customers, you're just wasting money as an advertiser. And so actually the number one strategy for using data and advertising is to not show you ads. (laughs) Mm. I think that's something that people don't understand. So I think the retargeting of e-commerce ads like kind of makes it feel like this is a bad idea somehow. But then the, the dark side is, yeah, if you're a big company, you can figure out something to do with it. If you're a small company and you were just using those like Google and Facebook pixels to know if your ads were converting or whether this spend was good, now you don't have that anymore. It's really hard. That's actually who in the ecosystem is by far hurt the most by the Apple changes. I think that's really sad because what did like we do with that whole advertiser growth thing? I was thinking about it. It's like we actually made it so that every small business could compete with the big ones and it's completely democratized ads and growing your small businesses. And if you talk to people like, would you like the small businesses to have the same tools as the big businesses to grow and create more competition? They would say yes. But actually what's happened is we've gone massively backwards on that. Yep. We're up against time. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for making the time. Really enjoyed the conversation. Looking forward to what you achieve in this new role. And yeah, hopefully we get to catch up again soon. Awesome. 
Yeah, it's it's great, Will. And let's not wait uh, years and years to chat again. But I'm so glad you're doing this because it gives us a chance to, to catch up. And uh, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, 100%. All right, let's do it. All right, man. Take care. Cheers. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening today. If you have any questions about anything we discuss on the podcast, drop me a line by email at podcast at searchpilot.com or get in touch on Twitter, where I'm at Will Critchlow. This podcast is the business class lounge from Searchpilot. Searchpilot helps large websites prove the value of SEO by making SEO tests easier, faster, and more accurate. You can find out more about Searchpilot at searchpilot.com. Today's podcast was produced by Mark Cotton and hosted by me, Will Critchlow. If you enjoyed the conversation, please recommend it to a friend.